0: slash free. Hello travellers, I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in this episode I'm talking to Peter Fines about his search for beauty and hope in Greece. We discuss the different areas of the country with recommendations for ruins to visit, as well as how the ancient Greek myths still resonate in modern times, with their tales of the darker side of humanity. We consider whether generations of belief can somehow imbibe specific locations with spiritual meaning and how a realisation of our place in history can give us hope that things live on and life is to be celebrated, even in difficult times. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Peter today. Peter Fines is the author of four nonfiction books, including Footnotes, A Journey Round Britain in the Company of Great Writers, and A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece, which we're talking about today. So welcome, Peter. Hello. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. I'm very excited to talk about Greece because it's uh, getting quite wintry at the moment. So tell us, first up, why Greece? You've written several travel and nature books about the UK. What drew you to Greece?
1: Well, I suppose I wanted to write about beauty. My book is called A Thing of Beauty, which is a quote from Keats, A Thing of Beauty is a Joy Forever. And I suppose I was suffering from an excess, like many of us, of ecological environmental angst and concern. And I just wanted to go to the most beautiful place I could think of. And also because of the myths. I've been fascinated by the myths for, for ever since childhood. And I wanted to see if there's anything in the myths, anything in the old Greek stories that could shed some light on our current predicament.
0: And do you have a history with Greece? Have you travelled there a lot?
1: I uh, used to go, we had have, my first family holiday was in Naxos when I was 14. So I know Greece a bit, I've been to Crete, I've been to the islands mostly, i would never really travelled around the mainland of Greece. Um, Athens, you know, I'd fly into Athens, like many people in the UK would fly to Athens and get on a ferry to the islands, but kind of ignoring mainland Greece. So yes, I've always loved Greece. I love books about Greece, uh, the thought of Greece, its philosophy and culture and everything fascinated me. But no, I have not I can't claim to have known Greece really well
0: yeah so let's just talk about the geographical areas because when if people haven't been many have that iconic picture uh maybe Santorini sort of white houses and blue sea but there are many different areas so so tell us a bit about each one and why they're so different and how they're so different from each other
1: Well, yeah, as I said, I knew the islands and I think that's what draws everyone, the sparkling blue sea and chugging up in the ferry and the beaches, of course, and that's what we know. But actually, every part of Greece is so different. And one of the most extraordinary things about Greece is because of its geography, it's actually a very small country. The main bulk of Greece is tiny, but it's so divided by valleys and gorges and mountain ranges that... Athens and Thebes, for example, two great centers of myth, are a day's walk from each other, about 25 miles away. Everything is really packed in, but you wouldn't know it because of the way, because of the geography of the place. So the Peloponnese, which is the main bit that hangs down with its three fingers, is extremely varied. And in the middle, you've got Arcadia which is so evocative, but it's full of forests and and running rivers and everything. Uh, And then the coastline is extraordinary. The beaches are like anything you'd find on the islands. Uh, Amazing cities, amazing ruins everywhere. Then up in the northwest, where I spent a bit of time, you've got Epirus, which is famous for its gorges and also famous for its old stone bridges. The people who live there are famous for building bridges. And that's beautiful as well. So there's so many different parts of Greece that... I was extremely lucky to get to.
0: I mean, even the islands themselves, I think people uh, think about the islands that are are further south, but like Corfu, which many people might have seen in uh, the Dorals and that kind of thing, that's actually pretty far north, isn't it? So even the islands themselves have a very different, uh, not so much landscape, but weather, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, the islands, because they spread all around greece and right up to the turkish coast and some of them are are bare rocks uh, and others like corfu as you say corfu faces albania and uh, made famous by the durrells in the north the northwest of corfu is just a beautiful series of um, beaches and wonderful tavernas and uh, it's a lovely place magical
0: Absolutely. Well, funnily enough, we were going to Corfu during one of these many lockdowns and everything and, and just didn't go because of all the testing requirements. So yeah. I, I've certainly been dreaming of, of Corfu. But let's also talk about ruins. I'm definitely an, a, a fan of architecture. And again, people might have in their minds the Acropolis. That would be a, one of the most famous ruins. But so what are some of the ruins and remains of ancient Greece that you found beauty
1: Well, I went to ancient Olympia, and if you haven't been, do go there. It's absolutely extraordinary. It was silted up by the the river and lay hidden for centuries, but uh, they rediscovered Olympia in the 19th century and have been digging down ever since, and so much of it remains. It's so evocative, surrounded by wooded hills, and yet you've got the old stadium where you can imagine the Olympic races being run. So that's a beautiful place. is amazing. Uh, Acro Corinth, it's called. So the old Corinth, which is their old citadel, you're high up on this hill, looking out across what feels like most of Greece, with the sea all around you. It's absolutely beautiful. And then right at the top, there's there's ruins. There's the old spring, and then just down below, there's Corinth itself, which much of it remains. Of, you know well, There are seven columns of the Temple of Apollo remaining. Uh, There's less remaining there because the Romans tore it apart. But Delphi, if you haven't been to Delphi, I actually consulted the Oracle at Delphi, but that's still there. And, you know, there's so much remained. It's just staggering. The the theatre at Epidavros, is, they still put on shows there. It's over 2,000 years old. They have shows at this most magical theatre, Stone Step Theatre, where the acoustics have to be heard to be believed. I was there during the pandemic, well you know between lockdowns, and there were very few visitors at that time and I remember vividly one one woman uh who she had a seven year old daughter or something who was sitting right at the top next to us and uh on these stone steps and she went down all the way down and dropped a tiny little pebble, and you could hear the sound just rippling up the steps and then she started to sing some old choral song it was a, and that was a moment of beauty
0: yeah and I was wondering about ruins I as I said I love ruins why do you think we find beauty in essentially a dead civilization <laughs> whereas yes. we might find less beauty in the more modern side which is full of people and rubbish and life so why do we find beauty in ruins
1: well I do sort chew over the idea of beauty. I mean, obviously, beauty is culturally learned. So our ideas of beauty. So, so the Greeks got there and they they laid down very specific ideas about what beauty was, and the way the temple should be constructed and proportions and everything. So, so we carry that with us. So that's partly it. Uh, and of course, the setting. You know where nature meets man's works, that's beautiful in itself. And then there's something about the sort of ache of what we've lost as well, because these are crumbling ruins. They don't really look anything like what they would have looked like. Even the most well-preserved ones were once covered in white marble and painted. And generally, they were really florid. The the statues are not what we think they were. I mean, people now know they were vividly painted with the gaudiest colours we can imagine. So their idea of beauty is is very different from what what we've somehow managed to inherit. But there's something about the way Greeks, they, they did know where to place a temple and make it look absolutely like it should belong. So I suppose it's the, the balloon between humanity's works and nature's that's, that appeals to us.
0: Mm. I love that you mentioned the colour there, because travelling in India and seeing the the, the colours of shrines there, or, or the Filipino Catholic tradition where they use a lot of colour. And I, yes. I feel in our sort of British tradition, we don't have so much colour in our religious tradition, whereas that, that does still remain in, in a lot of cultures. So it is funny, isn't it? So people obsess around these sort of white uh, columns where actually everything would have been painted.
1: <laughs> oh, it would have been glittering with gold and, and <laughs> mosaics and, and the paint, of course, is gone. So you know that's the first thing to fade over the thousands of years as the rain gets to it. The paint goes, but it would have been a very, very different experience from what we imagine. Plus the dancing and the shadow and the incense rising and the bellowing of the sacrificial animals, and it would have been a noisy, vibrant uh, thing to go to one of these temples. And we sort of uh, wander around in hushed reverence, but it's not like, it wouldn't have been like that at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned you went to Delphi and consulted the oracle. Uh, (laughs) So tell us a bit about that and, and why that's important.
1: Well, the theme, the undercurrent of the book is hope. And because I did sit in Lord Barham's gardens in Nottinghamshire in the rain and uh, with the pandemic raging, trying to get, I'd meant to be in Greece for a long time and I couldn't get there. And instead I was kind of getting depressed about the news which keeps coming in about, well, we're in the middle of COP26 at the moment, all the desperate news about climate chaos and everything. And uh, so I just thought I would go to Greece and see if I could find hope or some messages in the old myths. And uh, one of the things, the, one of the myths I became preoccupied with was Pandora's jar, or Pandora's box, as it, is, as it's been mistranslated. And that's the one where she arrives uh, with a jar from Zeus and is told never to open it, and of course she does and until that moment there's no war or death or disease, and all the evils of the world fly out, but the only thing that is left is hope. And then the debate rages as whether hope was left in the jar or, ins- or instead fluttered out among us and uh, and i rather literally went looking for hope so i i found a question for the oracle at delphi because you have to be very specific with your questions because you can easily get misled by the answer and i asked i got translated into ancient greek for me which i'm afraid i don't speak uh where can i find pandora's hope i asked and then I found a priest of Apollo on the internet, I'm afraid. And so my, <laughs> my consultation, uh, he assured me that the appropriate libations were poured and because he lives in Delphi. And uh, the question was asked, so I got my answer back. Uh, and then I went to Delphi and, in fact, met him and had a, uh, an amazing time in Delphi.
0: You have to tell us. Is hope among us then?
1: <laughs> well, the hope, <laughs> the answer from Delphi is is predictably slightly... Well, it's quite a long answer. Um, which concludes without giving the whole thing away, know yourself, which was the famous injunction at Delphi. So we have to look inside ourselves for sure. But I yeah, I did I, everyone I met in, in Greece, I would ask, where's hope? Do you have hope for the future? Because this was a you know terrible time for everyone. And in Greece, it's been terrible anyway, because of the economic collapse and so on. And I got some amazing answers from taxi drivers and hotel owners, and I met a shepherd in Arcadia. And uh, an activist, I spoke to many conservationists and activists about where they would find hope am- amongst what seems to be relentlessly bad news.
0: And it's interesting because, of course, the people would go to the Oracle of Delphi and ask these questions and there, there's a place, uh, isn't there, where you can stand, and there were temples and everything. But people actually used to go to a sort of more of a a hole in a rock, I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> where, where where the Pythia would sit and and uh, pronounce, uh, presumably yes. a little bit on some drugs. I, I think that was. the... <laughs> That, that
1: seems to that be was, the consensus today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So, what was it like in modern times? I mean, in a way, obviously, you you can so you, you were trying to tap into the those mm. ancient vibes. But what is it like now in that place? I mean, is the veil still thin in that area?
1: Yeah. I, it felt that way to me. I mean, you can think yourself into that mood anyway. But Delphi feels authentically holy. It, it was one of the great pilgrimage sites for hundreds hundreds of years. And um and then of course it wasn't. So it does feel you're high up, your the view is staggering, the sunsets and sunrises are are unbelievable. And it it does it seems to be drenched in some kind of spirit. But of course we bring our own feelings to these places and what I felt other people wouldn't necessarily. So you you know, we're we're very influenced by what what we're thinking at the time or reading. So but it does, there's something about it. They knew, as, as I said before, they knew where to place their buildings and their holy sites. The Greeks, they this place does feel that just getting there, yeah, you know, they would have had to walk, of course, but just getting there, twisting up that, that mountain, feels like you're you're going somewhere really special, despite um, the coach parties <laughs> and everything else. And when I was there, there were fewer people there, but it's still, it's a busy place,
0: yes. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, are, are you feel that emotions from people can imprint into a place somehow. And Mm. that given people would, like you say, people bring their expectations to that place. But if thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have brought their expectations to that place Mm. to speak to the gods over thousands of years, then it makes sense to me that it would still feel like a holy place, even though that's not your religion. It's a feeling that it's uh, almost it comes through time, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think, well, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? And yeah, many people would believe that and, you know, that the landscape itself is sort of soaked up our experiences. As they say about the Somme, if you go there, you can feel a chill of what happened there. Um, It's a really interesting question that I chew over throughout the book, Mm. what is there and what isn't. And of course, I don't know, there are places in Greece which probably held the sacred places that we just walk over without a second thought at the moment as well. But but Delphi has a, has an aura. There's no doubt about it. Of course, it's you know we've heard about it for all our lives, so you're aware of it. But it's a magical place anyway. So, and there's something about the trees there you know, it's a, a, as well. They they feel vibrant with with meaning and messages and uh, I had a very moving time.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, I keep coming back on this. I think about this a lot. I just did the St Cuthbert's Way uh, Mm. to Lindisfarne and I'm not a Christian, but I walked across the sands to Lindisfarne and watched the dawn uh, over Lindisfarne and it felt, even though, like you say, there was a coach party there, like loads of tourists and then, (laughs) but there's a spiritual side of that place. Have you felt that? I've only felt that in a few places in the world really and you've traveled a lot as well are there other places where you've had a similar feeling
1: well in my book footnotes I went around Britain trying to experience similar things and yes there are certainly places where you come prepared for them as well so I suppose that's what I'm saying your your, your mind is open to it perhaps when you go to Lindisfarne as well you're already sort of half open to the idea that this place is holy um but there's a surrealist writer called Eiffel Cahoon who lived in Lamorna Cove in South Cornwall who wrote about that place where indeed the landscape veil is very thin she wrote and uh, and it does feel that way and it's partly because there's no one there most of the time so you can walk alone and you feel it but there's there is something there and and there's standing stones there and it feels ancient and important in some ways. so Mm. Oh so yes, I, I I do believe it, but I also I'm kind of alert to what I'm bringing to it, and where you know, particularly if you're writing a book on this subject, you don't want to kind of go looking for it, you know, finding it just because you're looking for it. If you see what I mean?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I do believe in preparation, but sometimes the most preparation results in a pretty empty experience. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it can go either way. No, that's good. Uh, so coming back to the myths, so you've mentioned Pandora. Uh, wh- were there any other myths in particular that stick in your mind, either with a place or just because the story just means a lot?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you go to Mycenae, for example, that uh, that is amazing to see, because that is where Agamemnon was killed and so many myths were and Cassandra was there. And, and it's, that does feel... Um, that feels rich in myth but all over Greece I mean the, I went to a place called Metamorphosi Beach which is south of Epidavros um, and uh, that's apparently where Theseus's son was killed according to Euripides when a bull rose from the sea I mean you go to these places the coastline has changed a lot over the years so you don't really know whether you're quite standing there but, but he, Euripides describes a, a salt lake an inland salt lake and that's there. And and that's a really magical place. I went there looking for the goddess Artemis, who was meant to dwell on the edge lands of things. And that was a moving place. Uh, Epidavros, I've mentioned, there's a fantastic myth, which is set in Thessaly, about about a man It's a Thessalian prince called Ersicthon, who chops down a sacred tree and is punished by the goddess Demeter. By being made hungry, and the more he eats, the hungrier he becomes. So that seemed to have. In the end, he runs out of things to eat, so he eats himself. That (laughs) that seems to be bringing a message for us at the moment. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the thing about Greece—you go to Arcadia and pan is on the mountain, and you just because it's in your mind, you are thinking about all the time. But it's just—it's just there. You feel so close to all those myths, and and everywhere you turn. As I said, uh, Greece is not big, but it takes a long time to get around because of the geography. And uh, everywhere you turn, it feels like there's some new myth, and Corinth, of course, and Thebes, and goodness, there's no end to it.
0: But it's interesting because we, and again, we're uh, educated in a Western kind of classical tradition, but it, I also studied Greek and classical civilization, and I, I've always been pretty obsessed with the darker mythological stories, and I, as a teenager, I went to a performance of the Bacchae at one of those sort of Greek amphitheatre things, as you said, with the amazing acoustics, and that has stuck in my mind. And I've even put it a bit into it into my novel Tree of Life. But it, it, that horrific kind of side of of myth and the the plays of Euripides and all of those writers, mm. they still resonate in modern times. Is, is that just the human condition stays the same?
1: Well, they do resonate, and that's the incredible thing. Here are some of our first plays, and and here we are. I mean, only a fraction of them survived. Some kind of a blessing, but 95% of all the literature has been lost. But yes, they do resonate, and, and partly because our culture is built on that. But they change with the times. That's I think the thing about myth and and indeed those plays, ancient stories. They, they We all bring our own current concerns to the myths, so myths are quite slippery and they're ever-evolving. And that's what I find fascinating about them. There's no right version to any myth. There's always more versions that Euripides would sort of tinker with the version and so would the other playwrights and Homer and, and all of them. So there's no kind of set text of myths, which is actually quite a relief in the end. And it's, you know, Ovid brought his own versions of them along as well. So they're still incredibly powerful to this mm. day. And it's partly because we can always see things in it. So whatever our current concerns might be, the myth has something in there for us. And that and that's what makes them a myth, I guess.
0: Yes, and a lot of them are very violent. And just, you know, the stories (laughs) and I mean, even the... (laughs) But a a film that a lot of people will know about Greece is 300, the the Spartans and the violence of of that era. And, of course, a lot of the myths are about even the gods. So the picture at Goya's painting of Kronos eating his children also, (laughs) it's like these haunting, dark images. And is it it that we crave... uh, stories about that kind of thing because it's not our experience whereas back then it kind of was more of a daily
1: experience. Well violence was definitely a daily experience for them and as was slavery I mean all these incredible civilizations were founded on slavery uh, and the in the brutal enslavement and of others they were constantly fighting each other and capturing each other and yeah there's violence was a daily reality for them and uh, so I suppose that's one Part of the myth is that you know the, the myths are violent because their lives were violent, uh, but the myths are beautiful because their lives were beautiful and lived with extreme intensity as well, I suppose, because they, certainly they didn't seem to have, their, their concept of the afterlife was really different from ours. So there's an ode by Pindar where he writes, how about, you just have to live in the moment because we don't know what's coming next, but it's not going to be as good as this. So that, <laughs> that uh, you know they loved life they gloried in it and and celebrated it uh, but it was extremely precarious you know the rates of death in childhood and so on and and in childbirth must have been staggering but Mm. um, it was a place of beauty as well so violence and beauty combined lived with intensity
0: Yes, and I mean, maybe that is hope for us too. I mean, I, I find that, as you've mentioned, some of the challenges facing the planet <laughs> can sort of lead you down into these darker places. And yet that message, which is things live on and life is to be celebrated, is is also universal, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's always good to remember these amazing works of art and architecture and, and- engineering miracles that emerged out of constant warfare and and plague i mean uh, there's this terrible plague that hit athens that uh, is written about and uh, this the descriptions of a third of the city dying in the most violent and horrendous manner throwing themselves into the wells in the city just because their thirst was raging and uh, so they you know are, puts our covid into the shade and yet all this Incredible stuff emerged at the same time, so it's good, yeah. It's good to remember that. Mm, I, I think- I, I, I'm chewing over this idea all the time in the book because uh, is what we are facing very different from what they experienced, or is it the same? In essentially the same, we always like to feel everyone feels they're living in kind of apocalyptic times, but uh, <laughs> it feels worse now but maybe that's just us but of course we're so much more aware aren't we what what we're doing to the planet and what what's happening to it and which they wouldn't have been and i think also which sounds strange because greeks talk about change a lot and how everything is is always changing they had a much more they had a more a greater sense of stability than we probably do the earth feels to be shifting under our feet at the moment because we're so aware of you know clean forests going up in flames wherever we look particularly in greece but uh, and California and, and everything that's been going on, this, this has kind of been a this is producing a shift in us. I think of, of the way we see things. Whereas they would have probably woken up one, every morning and thought, well, essentially things are the same. Even if our city's under siege or whatever's happening, the, the essential facts of the world are not changing.
0: I totally agree with you. It's, it's uh, back to Pandora's box: the the curses and the blessings. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing we have this, you and I talking, even though we're we're both in the UK, we're talking on Zoom, and it, Zoom is both a blessing and a curse. So, I mean, yeah. and, and like you say, the knowledge of what is going on in the world is what it can make you very anxious. But equally, I wouldn't give it up uh, to go back and live in modern Greece, as you mentioned. It's not just slavery; women weren't even considered anything uh, either. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I would much rather be living in our times than back
1: then. The, all the modern medicines. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. I think there are lots of, uh, this is the, the thing there, isn't it? The, the curse of knowledge. But th- um, let's just move into modern Greece, because obviously you write in the book about the people you spoke to, the modern Greeks. So what, what were some of the things that you noted about the modern country? And what what would people find in terms of modern Greece when traveling there now?
1: Well, it is the friendliest place in the world. That's easy to say. But it, <laughs> it is. Travelling around Greece, uh, I and mean, they're well used to tourists now, of course, but it's just, it's friendly and, and it's uh, jaw-droppingly beautiful and the beaches are the nicest and most gorgeous you can find anywhere. And the food, which is, you always used to get bad uh wrap but actually the food is i mean particularly if you like greek salad i have to be, <laughs> honestly, you have to i could eat greek salad every day for months but there's much much more to it than that there's no end to the beauty of greece because because of its geography because of that extraordinary coastline uh, the islands of course island hopping what could be nicer uh and then some of the national parks i was bird watching flamingos uh in greece and that was that was beautiful so
0: Flamingos uh, that- <laughs> flamingos
1: in Greece. Yes, indeed. <laughs> flamingos, cormorants, you name it. They're all there. Merlins. Uh, it's yeah. Well, I mean, there's different parts to Greece that you can get to easily. And um it's so well worth getting off the tourist trail. I went to a staggering forest, the Forest of Foloi, which is north of Olympia. And it's mostly an oak and beech forest, and it's where actually the centaur Pholus lived, was what it's named after, who was accidentally killed by Heracles. And uh, but it's a beautiful place, and you can just wander through there, and you won't see anyone else.
0: And then it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about the environmental problems, but we're people who love travel <laughs> so yeah. you know what does travel mean to you in these pandemic times and and will that be changing for you in the future do you
1: think i've tried to change it anyway i'm you know i've been uh it's so difficult isn't it, it it's to get to greece in the end i flew to greece and back because time was so short this time i was trying to get by train but it's really difficult i mean travel as everyone says it, it opens the mind and uh I love to travel and I just will try and travel more lightly uh, if, I, if I can and tread carefully. But I, I find this question cropping up all the time in my book is what are we supposed to do? It's a really hard one. We need, you know, we need things to be in place that make it easier for us to travel without causing so much damage.
0: Mm. Well, it's so interesting. You mentioned about flying there. I just even to walk the St. Cuthbert's uh, way. So I had to get to Berwick-on-Tweed, which for for people who aren't British, it's not that far away. (laughs) I mean, but um, to get there by train, it cost me five times as much as it would have cost to fly up to Edinburgh and then just get the bus but yeah. I got the train but it was ridiculously expensive and I kind of started to see now that the routes um the train routes in Europe are starting to come back there they've also now introduced a cheaper rail uh, ticket to Edinburgh from London mm. so I'm kind of encouraged that p- if p- more people want to travel in a different way that we're going to start seeing the infrastructure that comes in but I but I still feel like you said it's really cheap to
1: flight from britain yeah, to, to greece it's, 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 <laughs> cheap to fly. it's much cheaper to fly to athens than than it is to take the train to edinburgh and that's wrong so obviously we need pressure from all of us from from below as it were for our votes and activism but we also need governments just to do things but put the rules in place that will make it you know much easier for us to do the right thing mm. it's, it's a really hard one that and yes. um, I feel it, you know, it is, there's so much more interest in that. And traveling by train is is a joy. Of course it is. Walking holidays are wonderful. But yeah, traveling in Europe is a lot easier than in Britain.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So uh, this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own books, what are a few uh, books about Greece or travel that you recommend?
1: Oh yes. Okay. Well, I love. Um, can I mention historical fiction first? Yes. Mary, Mary Renault's books, *The Bull from the Sea*, *The King Must Die*. They're, they're her kind of retellings of the ancient myths. Start with *The King Must Die*. It's an, it's an amazing, book written in the fifties about what happened to Theseus, and then you get to the Minotaur and everything. And it, but it's as though it was a real, it was a real thing. So that's a brilliant book. There was a great book by Henry Miller, The Colossus of Marusi, written, I think, in just before or during the first, the Second World War. And that's an amazing travel book. He was friends um, with Lawrence Durrell. And so he pops up in the book as well. And that's well worth doing, reading. I, I like fiction. And Natalie Haynes, she's written some fiction based on the myth of Oedipus and uh, also Madeline Miller, Circe, mm. uh, Arca, the, the Trojan women. There's some really good historical fiction being produced at the moment, which kind of based in the myths but making them feel real. So I, I think if you're going to travel to Greece. I think it's really worth reading the, the fiction as well as the travel books.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, Patrick Lee Thurma, of course, is the classic one. But really, there's so many brilliant books I think.
0: W- what about any modern Greek authors?
1: Yes. Okay. So there's a brilliant collection of short stories. It's in English. It's called Something Will Happen, You'll See, which is a set, short story set in Athens by a writer called Ikonomu. But that's a really, that's, that's, they're beautiful little short stories. And that's, I would start there if I were you.
0: No, that's fantastic. Of course, so- there's
1: more with the Greek, which has been reissued by Penguin Fabian. It's a, it's actually a great book. Uh, it it goes on. It feels like it goes on slightly too long, but it's 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 a really good book, <laughs> and not nearly as silly as the film. <laughs> <laughs> exactly,
0: brilliant. So, where can people find you and your books online?
1: I am Peter Fines. I'm p at p fines on Twitter, and um, they're published by One World Publications. So you'll find everything about me on there
0: fantastic well thanks so much for your time Peter that was great
1: thank you very much
0: thanks for joining me today on the books and travel podcast I hope you found a moment of escape you can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations download one of my books for free at jfpencom forward slash free Happy travels until next time.